Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our fifth episode of 2024. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast. And, um, you know, last week, the Department of Education issued its 2024 National Education Technology Plan, which identified three key digital divides, limiting the potential of education technology. The first was digital use, second is digital design, and third is digital access. You know, plan underscores the importance of high-speed internet to maximize educational opportunities uh, for students and teachers. You know, FBA members are working diligently to build the fiber broadband network that will connect communities, schools, teachers, and students to powerfully learning resources. Uh, we have, we'll put a link to this report in the chat. Um, as we've been reporting, the FCC's ACP program is at risk of running out of money by April. There's over 22 million American families that are currently depending on ACP to be able to afford to have access to high-speed broadband service. The FCC has asked Congress for $7 billion to fund the program to the end of the year but and has begun the, pro, um, the process of winding down the program. Enrollment for new ACP recipients ends February 7th. And the program scheduled to end on April 8th if new funding is not appropriate. Our first regional Fiber Connect workshop is coming up on February, April 8th in Richmond. We have an amazing lineup of speakers, including our good friend Joey Winder from Treasury and former FCC Chair Ajit Pai. Uh, registration for Richmond is now open, but as predicted, we're very, very close to being sold out. So you better register ASAP if you want to attend. Um, in addition to Richmond, We'll be in Little Rock in um, April, Deer Valley in uh, June, Des Moines in September, Albuquerque in November, and our big Fiber Connect workshop or conference, I'll call it, is in Nashville, July 28th to 31st. This brings us today's Fiber for Breakfast session with Jim Stegman, the CEO of CostQuest Associates, to discuss the critical role of broadband fabric and precision data for funding programs. Last week on Fire for Breakfast, our guest was Coleman Collins from INQ Quantum Business Solutions, who discussed hybrid quantum computing. You know, Coleman shared with us how classical and quantum computing can work together to solve some of the world's toughest challenges and how fiber will be ushering in this new age of quantum networking. Today on Fire for Breakfast, our guest is Jim Stegman, the CEO of CostQuest Associates, discussed the critical role of broadband fabric and precision data funding programs. Jim leads a firm of geospatial data scientists, uh, IT costing and value experts. He has testified before Congress multiple times and is a recognized expert behind the development of the latest generation economic cost models and data use across telecommunications companies and government for broadband deployment analysis and valuation. Jim leads the design and implementation of the fabric location data adopted by the FCC for the national broadband mapping effort which is driving the allocations for the NTI-B program. Jim provides his expertise on the utilization of the fabric to develop national fiber to the premise cost for NTIA, 
He also leads design implementation of the Connect America cost model, which is used in the FCC's CAF program to distribute $1.5 billion annually to fund broadband deployment. So welcome, Jim. And for audience, please type in your questions as go, and we'll get work those in the Q&A at the end. With that, we turn things over to Jim. Gary, good morning, and thanks for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to the group here and walk through what we believe is a critical part of the uh, broadband deployment across the US, which is the fabric, and then how that fabric interrelates with everything. So hopefully we can uh, inform people how it's created and how it interplays with BEAD uh, and other broadband funding programs. So if we go to the next slide, just a quick introduction of who we are. We were formed in 1999, and we are what we believe the leading geospatial economic experts on broadband networks. Um, we provide data to the FCC, to NTIA, to various states, and to various commercial entities to understand the broadband marketplace. Um, we create targeted product and service solutions, uh, and today we're gonna walk through our data, our mapping, our broadband planning, uh, and some of our government advisory support services we provide. What we won't cover today is the work we do on the valuation side. Uh, we are recognized as a leading expert on the valuation of broadband networks. Those valuation studies that we produce are used in property tax efforts um, and in M&A activities. So if you have any interest in that, please let us know and we can get you that uh, as we uh, go through. What I'd like to do is start kind of at the end point, which is where we are today with the broadband map uh, and what the FCC produces. And then from that work backwards to how that data gets into the map. So as most of you know, the Broadband Data Act came out in 2020. That Broadband Data Act required the creation of a common set of data set uh, of all locations in the US where fixed broadband internet access service can be installed or where it currently is installed. That act outlined the collection of the broadband coverage data at the location level, which is what the FCC takes care of. They collect that from the ISPs. It outlined the basics for the fabric, which is what we provide. And that fabric was required to contain the geocoded information of each location in the country. And it serves as the foundation, not only for the FCC's fabric, but for all federal broadband programs. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And we'll discuss that as we go through this today. Um, the last thing it kind of hit on was it created the challenge process to make sure that data is as accurate as possible for all the programs that rely on the information. So let me jump to where we are at with version three. And this is a confusing chart, but hopefully by the end of the, me walking through it, it'll help make sense. Where we were with version two, uh, and if you see the line on there, it says total V2. We had about 115 million locations in the country and we'll focus on the unserved we had eight and a half million unserved. So you'll see that eight and a half million in the gray box. That's what we have at the end of version two. And that's how BEAD was determined and the allocations were made. The FCC then in late last year released version three of the broadband data collection effort, which you see on the far right side. And that unserved count went from 8.5 million down to 7.2 million. What happened in between is critical for people to understand. And that's why I put this chart together. One is, as you look at that 8.5 million, and you go up the column, of that 8.5 million, 5.9 million remained as unserved in version three. 668,000 shifted from unserved to underserved. 
1.3 million shifted from unserved to served. And then finally, almost, uh, well, 559,000 dropped out. So with the fabric release that we push out every six months, there will be new locations coming in and there will be locations that are dropped based upon our review of the information, uh, based upon changes in structures and everything that we're seeing. So it's important to understand that there are locations that drop. The other column that you see on there is the column labeled new. So in version three, there were 3 million new locations that came out. And with those locations, there is mapping done by the ISPs of, of those new locations, 500,000 were identified as unserved. So if you take the 5.9 million that were unserved from version two, yet in the 503,000, the other changes were changes in coverage. So of the served locations in version two, 396 locations shifted to unserved, and on the underserved, 410,000 shifted. So net is where you get the 7.2, but it's important to understand where those things come from. And it will be important for states running their bead programs to understand this uh, because they'll have to uh, incorporate the version three coverage into their bead efforts to understand which locations need to be served. The bottom part of it is just a sand key diagram that shows that shifting in coverage so that you understand it. And this data is available on our website. If you need information how to get to it, let us know and we can point you to that. Actually, the next one. So now let me walk backwards to how that information is gathered uh, and developed. So the fabric is uh, what we developed. We uh, released our first version of the fabric in June of 2022. We are now working on version five. Version four was just released at the end of December and we'll walk through the timing later on. But basically that fabric is based upon hundreds of millions of points, actually closer to billions of points. Um, we apply statistics statistical scoring, AI, crowdsourcing, and other techniques to create what we believe is the most accurate fabric data set available. It's based upon parcel, satellite imagery, commercial footprints, tax attributes, address data sets, and other information. And I'll quickly walk you through how we generate that fabric. If you go to the next slide, uh, and this will be real quick, and I apologize for the speed to go through all this, but the question we're asked is on the left-hand side of the screen, in that image, identify the BSLs, or broadband serviceable locations. Our process first pulls in the parcel boundaries. So those parcel boundaries give us kind of the geographic footprint on which to investigate all the information we collect. Next, the last image on the screen on the right, is then we bring in through a, uh, artificial intelligence, we will scan satellite imagery, aerial imagery, to identify the building footprints across the US. Those building footprints are overlaid then with the parcels to help us understand what we're looking at. If you go to the next slide, we then pull in tax assessor information that gives us information on land use, uh, number of units, other critical information in our modeling uh, capabilities to make sure that we are able to accurately represent the fabric. And then the middle one is we bring in address sourcing. That address sourcing one gives you the information to link your address information to the fabric but it also gives us information to identify units and other critical pieces of the fabric data that we deliver. The final piece is what you see on the right-hand side of the screen, which are the blue dots on the FCC map that I'll show you later, they're green dots. 
but it's basically the latitude and longitude of each broadband serviceable location in the country. And then the most recently release, we're, excuse me, up to about 115 million BSLs in the country. So how do we make sure that release to release, we're improving the quality of the fabric? And that's a critical piece of this. We know we need to continue that improvement process. The FCC and Congress solve to it with the challenge process. We also have our own self-challenge process. So if you go to the next slide, what we do is in concert with the FCC challenge, we run our own internal self-challenge process to make sure that each release is improved. And we're happy to, to announce that in version four, which was just sent out at the end of December. We correctly identify parcels with a BSL on it 99.6% of the time, uh, which is an improvement over version three. We correctly identify the structure on the parcel that is the BSL 99.1% of the time. And then our type one and type two error rates are approaching 1%. So we think it's a, a vast improvement over where with version one, and we will continue to improve this as we roll forward with future releases. How do we get to that? Let me go to the next slide. So the first part of the process is the FCC challenges. The FCC has eight specific challenges, as you see on the left-hand side of the screen. The primary challenge that has been filed by parties is a type one challenge, which is a missing BSL. Those missing BSLs come in, or challenges come into the FCC. The FCC runs an adjudication process in which they visually inspect most of those to identify if there's actually a missing BSL that needs to be added. And as you see in that table on the right, these are based upon statistics released by the FCC. Most of those, I'm sorry, most of those type one challenges are actually rejected. It's about a 10% to 15% uh, acceptance rate of that. The rest fall to the floor. However, as they fall to the floor, we may farm some of the address information and other information that comes through to help on future releases. The other types of challenges, type two through eight, uh, are much less frequent. The most frequent of those is likely, is mostly the address change and the elimination of a BSL. But again, those are a small in count. And for the most part, most of those are accepted as they come through. So that's on the FCC side. On the CostQuest side, what do we do uh, to maintain the quality of the fabric? For each release, we update all of our data sources. We update our linkage between those data sources so that we can improve the overall point quality of how we achieve that. And what's what I showed you in that first slide on our quality. Across versions, we inspect about six to 800,000 records with each release visually. Those are records in which our confidence in the outcome isn't where we'd like it to be. So we want human eyes on that to verify whether it is or is not a BSL. We continually look at uh, uh, sourcing additional footprints, improving addresses, improve, uh, ex improving our exclusion zones. So we've had, you know, there, there, there have been parties that come forward and say, we've identified a BSL as a boulder or a hay bale. This exclusion zone is our attempt to try and clean out those areas where BSL should not be. And, and with each release, we continue to look at those areas to make sure we are excluding as much of that noise as possible. And then finally, we're always looking for new sources of information to help drive a much better fabric as we move forward in time. These are the improvements in version four specifically. I only hit on one specifically. This deck will be available. You can look at some of the other ones. But primarily in version four, we are trying to maintain consistency release to release on which location is picked, what location ID is used so that we don't have 
a shift such as a garage was noted in version three, now it's the house and we shift the location, may have changed the location ID, that creates issues downstream for parties. So we're trying to retain consistency as much as possible, release to release. Um, but overall, again, we were trying to make sure that each release we improve that underlying fabric. So now let's talk about what that coverage is. So we give this data to the FCC every six months. The FCC then has us provided to all the ISPs and to the states with that six month release. So as you look at the next page, this is uh, hopefully most of you have been out to the national broadband map. Um, on that map, you key in your address. Again, the green dots are what we provide in the fabric. The right hand side of the screen, which is the coverage information is what the FCC collects and represents on each of those points. Very nice map. I think it's exceeded all expectations of the quality and the information it provides to parties. If you go to the next page, um, there are calendar questions that come up as we walk into the bead and state programs that parties just need to be cognizant of. And I'll just hit on two critical things. We have just released version four of the fabric to the FCC and to the ISPs to conduct their version four BDC filings. NTIA just released version three of the fabric to the states to run their bead program. They were working with version two because that's how the allocations were conducted. They then got version three. So there is some confusion of which release to use, but the critical part is for version three and why NTI is relying on that is it links to the BDC information, the broadband data collection, and the costing information that we generate. Version four coverage information won't be available until May. And that's why it's not necessarily applicable to the current bead program as states are starting to roll out their volume two efforts. One confusing part uh, of the entire effort is the licensing. And, and we apologize for the confusion, but this, this data is being used across multiple programs sponsored by multiple entities. And it's critical to understand the FCC license, which is a tier two, three, four, or 4R, is provided by the FCC and allows parties to use that data within FCC efforts, such as their broadband data collection effort, their affordability program reporting, their pre-BDA USF obligation reporting, their post-BDA obligation reporting, such as enhanced ACAM, and then it's allowed for academic research. It is not allowed for use within um, federal broadband programs, such as BEAD or treasury programs that that FCC data is not permitted for use in those programs. For those programs, you need the NTAI license, NTIA license, which provides access to the fabric, the same fabric for those federally uh, sponsored broadband programs. The, the issue here is that that license can't be used on the FCC. So if you wanna work within the FCC programs and the uh, BEAD programs, you need both licenses. Critical thing is for state-sponsored programs which are not using federal funds, neither license is applicable. You need a commercial license through CostQuest. And for carriers who want to use the data internally or for other uses, we, you need a commercial license. And then finally, if you want to create commercial products from the fabric, you need to contact us about that. If you have questions about licensing, please reach out to us. Uh, there'll be contact information with this that you can ask any questions about that licensing. Uh, I'll hit on the cost quest model real quick, the, the cost model real quick, simply for the fact that the cost model was used by NTIA for the bead allocation. 
and those cost results are provided out to all the states. It's granular, we provide this information, it's consistent with the FCC's costing effort in enhanced ACAM, ACAM, and CACAM. Um, it is based upon the fabric data, and what we provide at the end point of this is the CAPEX and net present value uh, of a fabric, or I'm sorry, a fiber deployment to each location in the country, along with a, uh, the same information for fixed wireless across the country. If we go to the next slide, that model is based upon an efficient build. We're building the full footprint of 115 million locations across the country. The costs are apportioned out using TELRIC concepts. If you have questions about that, again, please reach out to us. And then we produce both the greenfield and brownfield number. The greenfield uh, is if, if nothing exists, the brownfield assumes that potentially certain portions of the network exist, and we're looking for the incremental investment to get that fiber out. The chart on the right just shows that cost profile of the unserved locations in the country on a location by location basis. Typically, if the investment for fiber is under 2,500, it's more commercially viable than if it's over 2,500. And you'll see the blue dots may be commercially viable, the other colors typically not, and those are in need of greater uh, funding to make carriers or to allow carriers to come in and achieve uh, broadband deployment in those areas. This data is all available in our CostQuest data, broadband fabric data suite on the next slide. That suite just combines all the relevant information. Contact us if you're interested in any portions of that. But if you look at the right portion, the FCC data license gives you that location layer. The NTIA license for states gives the cost and economics out to the states, so they get those two layers. And then for any commercial entity, if you want those layers, you can contact us for that information. If we go to the next slide, we also have an online uh, application called OnLook that provides geographic uh, capability to examine this data, do your own opportunity analysis in a quick uh, and efficient format. Uh, it gives you the investment profile, the net present value profile, competitive profile, all uh, in an easy to use application. Again, if you're interested, please reach out to us and we can provide information. And now with the last two minutes of, of um, my discussion, let me jump into the, the state programs. The issue that we see is there has to be a balancing act between what states are trying to achieve, which is a return on funding that maximizes the number of BSLs that they can serve with the minimal amount of funding. On the ISP side, they have a return on investment profile that they're trying to ensure that they have a long-term financial viability of serving those new locations. So it's a balancing effort between the two, and that's where we think our information plays a role in that. It helps at the point location level data, both parties to understand what that economic profile looks like so that efficient programs can be instituted. So as we help uh, states through their volume two implementation and development, and as we've helped states in the past with their programs, the first thing you have to come up with is the coverage. Uh, this has to be filed with NTI for NTI approved. It would seem somewhat straightforward, but what we found it is not. First, you get your version two coverage. From that, you run your state challenge process. You incorporate that. You then have to identify the locations with an enforceable commitment so that you can deduplicate and not fund locations that have already been funded. And then to, to add to the complexity, 
Now with version three of the fabric out and about 15% of the unserved locations removed, you want to incorporate that in, but in doing that, you've also got these new locations being added and other locations being dropped. So you just need to make sure you manage that process to come up with the coverage layer that is that creates the eligible locations for your bead program. As you do that, you also need to set up the guidelines for your program, which are, you know, what are the key attributes you want to achieve? What are the grant areas? How do sub-grantees uh, qualify for this? Uh, how do you define funding levels? Do you or do you not? How do you uh, identify your extremely high cost threshold uh, approach? And then how do you define your scoring criteria? Those are all captured in your volume two. Once you do that and you set those guidelines, then you have to run the program. So if you go to the next slide, as we're helping states through this effort, you know, the first critical thing is kind of trying to come up with the project areas or sub-project areas. These are simply clusters of eligible locations that are eligible for bid. Um, they typically are an aggregation of served or unserved and underserved. And what parties have done is they're using a combination or, or they're using either census definition or location definition. The census definition, I've seen some states use in counties, census blocks or census block groups. On the location side, I've seen and we're helping states through using um, either location clustering or hex cell clustering. We think that location hex cell provides greater flexibility and greater economic ties to the cost and profile. Once you do that and you create your project areas, you then capture the financials in those areas that if you want to set a target value of what parties are allowed to receive in that area, you can, or you can use those financials to understand as the bids come in, whether they're reasonable or not. The other thing you can do is consider other social, economic, environmental, or tribal information that you wanna capture in those project areas. And then the final thing is then once you do all that, you identify the project areas, you've uh, published your eligible locations, you've identified the relevant funding available and you've published your rules, then you run your program. We are in the process of implementing a grant management program for one of the early states. And in that we've developed the program such that it anonymizes all bidders. So there are no names captured in the system to avoid any potential bias. Uh, we encode all the rules in volume two within that. So it automates the scoring. Um, it provides quality control. Uh, we run mock auctions and sample dry runs so that the state and the participants know how the application works so that when the round opens, they can come in and intelligently enter their bids and then the state can run their program. The final thing it has to do is work on bid deconfliction. And what that is, is there is potential overlap between bidders. How do you score and award bids or uh, award award out when there is this confliction. And that's what this uh, grant management platform will work through. And then finally, it will provide the information for reporting. So it was a quick run through today of a lot of information from the start to the end of where we're at now. Hopefully it's been informative and I look forward to the questions to come. Well, Jim, you, got, you definitely had the most bang for the buck on information per minute. So um, you densely packed here, but um, so let me start with, you know, if I look at kind of the biggest issue concern that I have, uh, first of all, the maps 
are so much better than they were in the past. This whole census block look, at, I mean, so much, much better, and every version is getting more and more better. Uh, so now we're down to, you know, roughly with version three of the BCD, we're down to 10.2 million unserved and underserved. Yeah. And Cartesian's latest study was saying that, well, if you put the inputs from the other programs, that that will come down, bring that down to 6.4 million unserved and underserved locations. And so they're estimating that with the available B funding and the match, we should be able to get up to 86% of those locations, all the 100% locations served, and 86% of those served with fiber. Does that match with your estimates? Um, we might be uh, potentially a little bit higher, and it depends. It's, it's more state-driven. There will be states that should be able to achieve a much higher percentage. Uh, it's yeah. likely the Western states will struggle um, because that's where a lot of the high-cost locations are centered uh, and where the bead money may be deficient in funding those programs to an extent. And I think that's where uh, management of the extremely high-cost threshold can alleviate some of that and to, to allow as much fiber to be built with the funds as possible. Uh, but I, our numbers are probably a little bit higher than 86%. So you think we can get much better than that with fiber then? Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, because like, for instance, I'll, we'll be in Virginia next week and uh, the Cartesian estimates that, that Virginia has enough money, bead money, to be able to get 100% fiber to all the unserved and underserved and still have 112 million left over for adoption and other programs. So. So yeah. one, one of the things part, that part of what we found is that some of these locations that are eligible, they're small pockets in suburban and urban areas, that the amount of funding required should be minimal to get to those locations. So hopefully it's more of a line extension um, that doesn't necessarily require all the capex that would be required to get to that location by itself. So one of our latest working groups is on precision agriculture. Um, so in addition to applications you described and you know how cost plus data can be used, can you envision your data helping precision ag? Oh yeah, uh, we are we are looking to expand our AI capabilities and data that we have to identify better identify barns, um, silos, uh, chicken houses, uh, irrigation pivots. All those things are typically we're capable to identify what they are so that we can expand the locational data set to include some of those points within the data set to have it available. The other part is we can overlay uh, crop information at a fairly fine geographic level to understand where crop lands are, uh, where, where uh, pasture lands are, to incorporate that in as well to make sure that we're able to provide not only point level information, but polygon level information about agricultural lands uh, within that data set. All right, and just on the B, the last question here, but <clears throat> I mean, we're building out critical infrastructure for Elevate generations to come, right? And and it really worries me when states look at fixed wireless. How is how are they going to be able to, the state's going to be able to use your information to really, it's not just about getting a box tick saying we got covered, but make sure that we have the critical infrastructure for generations to come. So how can they use their data to really make sure that they're, maximize their fiber investment? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in part, what we view our data is is kind of a cross check against what parties will come in and ask for in grants. So it gives states kind of a, a background information of what to expect 
to manage efficiently how much money is provided out to each of the locations for which fiber is being built to so that they don't overspend, um, and, but rather efficiently spend on those locations to further stretch the budget so that they can go up the cost curve to get more of the location uh, in the higher portion of the cost curve served by being more efficient on the lower part of the cost curve. Well, Jim, I mean, it's just impressive on how you keep just, I mean, our national broadband maps went from a disaster to now it just gets better, better, better. So thanks for sharing your expertise and knowledge and all the work that you and your team are doing to really build better and better broadband, national broadband maps. And I want to thank everyone for joining us today. I look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We're going to be speaking with Ned Brody, the partner at Foundry.ai to discuss Artificial Intelligence 101, separating the hype from the practical. You're not going to want to miss that. So thanks again, and we'll see everybody in Richmond on February 8th. So thanks, everyone.